O Lord, our God, our Heavenly Father, today we celebrate the transfiguration of Your Son when He shined with brilliant light, revealing Himself to be fully God and fully man. We thank You that the glory revealed on the mountain pointed ahead to what would come after He suffered on the cross and entered into His resurrection glory. O Father, may we hear Him speaking through His Word today, and may we by faith behold His majesty. Father, we give You thanks and praise, for You forgive our sins, and You make us sharers in Christ's glory. You deliver us from our enemies and promise us victory over the grave. You give us Your Holy Spirit to unite us with Christ and with one another to help us to believe and enable us to fight against sin and selfishness that dwell in our hearts. O Father, with Your Son and with Your Holy Spirit, we give You all honor and praise. One God, existing in three persons, full of grace and truth, the immortal, all-wise, all-glorious God. By Your grace, we ask You to be with us, to welcome us into Your presence, that we might come before Your throne of grace. And we ask that by Your grace and through Your Son, You might receive the worship that we bring. Show us Your hospitality, O Lord, by feeding us at Your table and send us forth from here, ready and equipped to serve in the mission of Your kingdom, the mission You have given to us to proclaim Your glories far and wide that Your kingdom might fill the earth This is our prayer. Amen. Our lesson of the day is from 3 John. Again, listen carefully to God's Word. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to, and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you, and greet the friends, every one of them by name. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and the promise that Your Spirit is at work through the preaching of Your Word. May the preaching of the Word of God be the very Word of God to us. Give us hearts to receive Your truth in faith and obedience and humility. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Third John is sort of a companion letter to Second John. Third John is a letter to an individual named Gaius, a leader in the church, and it was probably sent by John with a man named Demetrius, who is commended here at the end of the letter. And he probably, John, most likely sent 2 John and 3 John together to the same congregation. 2 John intended to be read to the whole congregation. 3 John to be read only by Gaius as sort of an explanation of what 2 John was about. Several weeks ago, we looked at 3 John 2. Uh, And this verse that's often used by teachers of a prosperity gospel uh, to to bolster their, uh, their teaching that material prosperity is the true sign or one of the true signs of a person's spiritual maturity. This idea that if you if your soul is prospering, then you ought to be prospering and in good health as well. But as you remember in our study, we saw that the prosperity gospel is really no gospel at all. In fact, it's an anti-gospel. It treats God as a genie in a bottle or a divine vending machine that serves us and our desires. And there's no good news about that. We also saw, saw though, that ironically... 3 John, the letter of 3 John, if you consider the whole letter, actually teaches the very opposite of this so-called prosperity theology. The prosperity theology teaches that the world revolves around us, that God exists only to make us healthy and wealthy and comfortable. But in the letter of 3 John, we see two men pointed out One is condemned and one is praised. One is held up as a model for us to imitate and one is held up as a model for us to avoid. Diotrephes, the man who is called out uh, as the the model of the type of person to, to repudiate, to not imitate, is the man who's living for himself. He's described as loving to be first. He's concerned with his own status, with his own desires in the community. On the other hand, the model that's held up for us to imitate is this man named Gaius. And we gather from what little details we have here that Gaius is pouring himself out in sacrificial service to these Christian missionaries or church planters who are being sent out by the apostles. Gaius is welcoming them, is serving them, is supplying their needs for their journey. 
And so in this very brief and often overlooked epistle, we find one of the most important truths about how to live a blessed life. We find that true blessing is found not in getting everything we want, not in putting ourselves first, but in freely giving away the things that are not even really ours to begin with and we couldn't even keep them if we wanted to. True blessing is found not when the universe revolves around us, but true blessing is found in the self-forgetfulness that comes when we lay down our lives in service to others. And as it turns out, the biblical word for this kind of blessed life is hospitality. For thousands of years, the word hospitality basically referred to the practice of welcoming strangers and offering them food, shelter, and protection. In fact, one of the key New Testament words for hospitality literally means love for strangers. Unfortunately, the nature and practice of hospitality has changed drastically over the past several centuries so that current uh, ideas about hospitality are often very fragmented and distorted. When we think of hospitality, we often think of the hospitality industry, hotels and restaurants and resorts and all sorts of services that you have to have money to access. Hospitality in, in the, the hospitality industry is something that you buy. If you're not wealthy, if you don't have means or resources, no hospitality for you. Or sometimes the, we think of the government. Uh, we think of hospitality as the responsibility of the nanny state. If you're homeless or orphaned or aged or impoverished or unemployed or hungry or ill or a single parent, those are the prime candidates for hospitality in uh, Scripture and in the ancient world in general. But now, many of the, uh, the services or the, the means provided for caring for those uh, types of people are provided by the state, the government. And this has just become sort of a natural way of thinking to us in our society. Or on a more uh, personal, practical level, we often think of hospitality as entertaining. We think of hospitality as impressing our guests. We think that hospitality requires great affluence where you can pull out all the stops and, and lay out an extravagant spread. And there's nothing wrong with being generous, as we'll see. But we think that if we lack resources, if we lack the skills uh, to cook the fanciest meal or provide the most luxurious accommodations, then we can't offer hospitality. A lot of times, in, in many ways, hospitality is thought of as a, a means to an end, and usually a means to getting something in return. This is sort of an ambitious hospitality. If we entertain someone, we do that maybe to get something from them, maybe so that they'll return the favor. 
maybe so that uh, they'll be impressed and want to invite us over to their even nicer house or, or the like. We also often think that hospitality is optional. Some of us got it, some of us don't, as Barney Fife would say, right? We think of hospitality as optional. It's, if I have some extra time, I'll be nice to show some hospitality, to have somebody over, to take somebody a meal. But the problem, of course, is that God's Word teaches us that all of these ideas about hospitality are wrong or at least flawed in some way. So here is how I would define hospitality in a very broad and general way, and I hope to explain this definition as we look at Gaius' hospitality in 3 John. I think that broadly in its most broad concept, hospitality is making room in our lives for others. Hospitality is making room in our lives for others. So it's making room in our homes by letting someone stay in our home uh, or come and visit in our home. It's making room at our table, whether we're inviting someone over for a meal in our home or uh, going out to eat somewhere else with someone. It's making room at our table, whether we're taking a meal to someone else. It's making room in our schedule for giving the gift of time. It's making room in our budgets so that we have resources to share. It's making room in our conversations. It's involving someone else in our circle. It's making room in our thoughts. We give attention to someone else's needs. It's making room by just listening giving the ministry of listening, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes it. Hospitality is making room in our prayers to lift the needs of others before the throne of grace. It's making room in our community life for people outside. It's the simplest thing uh, of just acknowledging somebody's existence, making eye contact with somebody, putting your technology away and having a face-to-face conversation, making eye contact, speaking to someone as you walk by them. It's a generosity of spirit that doesn't make people feel like they're an item on your checklist where you just can't wait for this conversation to end or for this meeting to be done so that you can leave and go back to your life the way you want it to be without all of these inconvenient interruptions. Understood this way, hospitality is a way of life. It's not just uh, an event that we put on our calendar necessarily. It's not just a weekend project. It's a posture of generosity and welcome. Third John provides us with important insights about hospitality because as I said, we get a glimpse of these two opposite extremes. Diotrephes is this negative example. He refuses to show hospitality. He loves to be first. He refuses to welcome these Christian missionaries and church planters 
who are passing through and in need of assistance. They couldn't use their points and go stay at the local hotel and buy their meals at the restaurant in town. They, had, they would have had no place to stay and nothing to eat if the members of this church had not provided it. On the other hand, Gaius is the, one of the leaders in this congregation who has shown generous hospitality to these Christian brothers who were sent out by John. Even though these missionaries were total strangers to Gaius, he gladly welcomed them in and supplied what they needed for their journey. And when those missionaries, when those church planters, when those Christian brothers who had received Gaius' hospitality, when they went back, they reported to the Apostle John what they had experienced. And so now John writes this letter to Gaius commending him for his hospitality. And he uses three different words to describe the kind of hospitality that Gaius has offered them. We see the first one in verse 3. John says, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified. This is the word for witness. They were eyewitnesses. They came back as eyewitnesses of your truth. Okay, we'll, we'll unpack that in just a minute. What it means that they were witnesses of Gaius' truth. But then in verse 5, John says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. It's a faithful thing you do. This is hospitality is an act of faith. And then finally in verse 6, John says that these brothers came and testified to your love before the church. So hospitality is fundamentally an act of love. As we look at these three things, we'll pick up some important truths about hospitality. The first one is this idea that the brothers came back and testified to Gaius's truth. His truth. They testified, John says, to your truth. That you are walking in truth. What does John mean? It sounds maybe a little bit redundant for him to say it this way. But it seems that John is intentionally emphasizing that Gaius not only holds to true doctrine, walking in truth, but that his life is consistent with the, the doctrine that he professes. And so John calls it your truth. These brothers came back and testified to your truth. I think another way to maybe uh, translate that could be your integrity. The brothers came back and testified to your integrity that Gaius, you're holding the doctrine of the apostles. You're holding, you confess the true doctrine, but it's not just something you say with your mouth. It's something that you are living out. You are showing that you are living in accordance with the doctrine you profess. Gaius's walk matched his talk. He professed truth and he was walking in that truth. He didn't say one thing and do the opposite. He was not a hypocrite. He was the real deal. By the way, the word hypocrite uh, was used in classical Greek for, to describe a play actor. Somebody who acted on the stage. Someone who could pretend to be something that they were not. 
In contrast, John here commends Gaius for his truthfulness or his integrity. The word integrity is related, sounds like the word integer, right? They come from the same Latin root. An integer uh, is a whole number. And integrity refers, describes somebody is, who is a whole person. They're not divided or fragmented where I'm one person to this group of people and I'm another person to these group of people. Where, or I'm, I'm one way by myself, but I'm another way in front of everybody else. And somebody who has integrity is somebody who is fundamentally united. They are, their loyalties are not divided. They serve God and Him alone. And they're not inconsistent in the way that they live. When we lie, when we live inconsistently, we become fragmented and fractured as a person. We don't even really know who we are anymore when we are caught up in a web of lies and deception. We dis disintegrate. People of integrity are people of truth. They know who they are and they know whose they are. And they live in accordance with their identity as God's children. And so in the context of 3 John, Gaius' hospitality to these Christian brothers proved that he was loyal to the apostles and the doctrine that he professed. His hospitality was an act of loyalty. There were false teachers going around. And so to show hospitality to one but not the other was to show where your allegiance really was. In fact, John makes a play on the word for accept in verses 9 and 10 when he says that Diotrephes does not acknowledge our authority. That's the same word he uses in verse 10 to say that Diotrephes does not welcome the brothers. So hospitality to these Christian brothers sent by the apostles is the same thing as submitting to the apostles. And refusing to welcome these missionaries sent by the apostles is refusing to accept the authority of the apostles. Of course, this is nothing new. This is exactly what Jesus told His apostles in Matthew 10. Jesus said, Whoever receives you, the apostles, receives me, Jesus. And whoever receives me, Jesus, receives Him who sent me. So ultimately, Christian hospitality is an act of faithfulness to God Himself. We show our integrity. We show our true allegiance when we show hospitality to God's people. Now, our culture, of course, is very different from the first century, but there are many ways in which our hospitality or our lack of hospitality proves our integrity or reveals our hypocrisy. It's hypocritical isn't it for Christians to talk about God's love and compassion, but then never demonstrate that love 
and compassion to others. We who ought to be known as the most hospitable people on the face of the planet are often known as stingy, heartless, or uncaring. Our willingness or unwillingness to show hospitality reveals our true allegiance and our true sense of identity. If we only show hospitality to people of our skin color or our ethnicity or our political persuasion or our specific theological conviction or our socioeconomic status, we are revealing that these other things and not the gospel are the true basis of our identity. There's much more that could be said and needs to be said about that, but we, I want to, to look at this idea that Gaius's hospitality and our hospitality is an act of faith, a faithful work, as John calls it. Because Gaius' hospitality was not only an indicator of his integrity, it was not only uh, it did not only reveal his allegiance to the apostles, it was an act of faith. These people were complete strangers to Gaius. He didn't know them from Adam, and they come up and say, "Yeah, we're sent by the apostle John, and he told us that you would put us up for you know a couple nights and provide us with some." food and things for our journey. It's, it's an act of faith. Hospitality is making room in our lives for others. Hospitality, therefore, necessarily requires us to make sacrifices. You see, apart from God's grace, we're so full of ourselves that we couldn't make room in our lives for others if we wanted to. Our, our own egos are just bursting at the seams and trying to make room for somebody else in our lives is, is just almost impossible. This is our default position uh, as uh, sinners apart from God's grace has been appropriately described as the can mentality. Step one in the can mentality is to get all you can. Get all you can. Step two in the can mentality is to can all you get. Step three in the can mentality is to sit on the can. This is our default position. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can. Making room in our lives for others is virtually impossible. And if we do show hospitality, it's usually not out of sacrifice, it's usually by giving people the extras that we aren't able to stuff in our can. We have so much stuff that it won't fit in our can, and so, well, it won't fit, so I'll just give it to somebody else. I don't have any more room. So I, I, that's my generosity. That's my hospitality. Well, in opposition to this posture of selfishness and self-centeredness, the Gospel frees us from this deadly disease with the good news that God has freely given us all things in Christ. That God has lavished His grace upon us and called us to receive His bountiful gifts with empty hands. 
But we are not called to be reservoirs of God's grace. Sometimes as Christians, we import the can mentality into our understanding of the gospel. God has lavished his grace on us, so let's get our can out and collect God's grace in that can. We'll collect all of God's blessings in our can. We'll can it and we'll sit on it. This is just a baptized version of the same selfishness. No, the biblical model is that we are blessed to be a blessing. We are not supposed to be reservoirs of God's grace, but conduits through which God's grace flows out to the world. We have nothing that we haven't received from God. And so we're called to give away God's gifts in faith that God will supply all of our needs. But this kind of lifestyle, this kind of generosity, this kind of extravagant, uh, lavish, prodigal lifestyle requires faith. It requires faith that God will supply our needs, that God will keep His promises, that God will allow us to be generous and not go without. Hospitality requires sacrifice. And sacrifice requires that we make ourselves vulnerable. If you're going to make room in your life for somebody else, you're going to have to become vulnerable. So simply put, biblical hospitality is very risky. What if I show hospitality and this person takes advantage of my generosity? What if I make room in my life for someone else and they hurt me? What if I let this person in and they take advantage of me? What if I embarrass myself in my uh, stepping out in faith to do what I'm not comfortable doing? What if, this, what if I invite this person over and they eat all my favorite food? What if this person is ungrateful or doesn't return the favor? What if I give to someone else and don't have enough for myself? Hospitality is risky. It, make, it requires that we make ourselves vulnerable. But according to the New Testament, these sort of risky situations are usually the best possible opportunities for hospitality. Consider this simple fact that most of the commands in the New Testament to extend hospitality are given to Christians who are undergoing severe persecution or trials. Hospitality is not reserved for, well, when we have it all together, then we'll be in a place where we can actually show hospitality. When we get a bigger house, or when we get a nicer dining room table, or when we have more money to buy better food, or when we... on and on and on. Those kinds of risky situations where we find ourselves not really knowing how we'll be able uh, to impress other people, those are usually some of the best opportunities for hospitality. It's a non-negotiable aspect of the Christian life. 
the only prerequisite for hospitality, for showing hospitality, is having received hospitality from God. Now, there's a difference between faith and foolishness. There are certain people that you should maybe think twice before you invite them uh, into your home. But as Calvin said, we often cover stinginess with prudence. And we must always be careful not to do that. And so finally, we come to this idea that hospitality is fundamentally an act of love. Hospitality is central to the Gospel and central to the Christian life because God is hospitality. In His very nature and essence, God is hospitality. He is love. The pattern we see all throughout Scripture is that the triune God is hospitable in His very essence and that it is His nature to show extravagant hospitality. Sometimes we think of the Old Testament laws as uh, we think of God in the Old Testament as grumpy and legalistic and as a, a cosmic killjoy. But we need to remember that m- many of the laws that God commanded in the Old Testament required feasting and celebration. In fact, feasting far outweighed fasting in the Old Covenant. And the New Covenant is even more so focused on feasting and celebration. With the coming of Christ, we see God's hospitality take on an infinitely deeper significance. God demonstrates His love for us in Christ by making room in Himself for us and by making room in us for Himself. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit exists eternally as a fellowship of love and hospitality. And we, through faith, are welcomed in to this glorious communion. That is why Paul can say things like he does in Romans 15, which we heard earlier. He says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The church is not a collection of individual Christians who get together once or twice a week uh, just to hang out. This is not coming together for our own private uh, connection with God. We are the body of Christ. We are members of one body, one with another. Being in union with Christ necessarily requires and indicates that we are in union with His body, with the church. Where is this welcome of God most clearly manifest that Paul speaks of? The welcome of God, the welcome of Christ. How do we see that? How do we experience that? Why are we even able to come together as one body? How are we able to welcome one another? How are we able to show hospitality? How does God train us in His hospitality so that we can extend His love to strangers, 
as I said before, the only prerequisite for showing hospitality is having received God's hospitality. And one of the primary ways that we are trained in God's hospitality and experience His welcome is every Lord's Day when we gather at His table. The Lord's Supper is where we learn generous, extravagant hospitality from God. I know somebody's out there thinking, yeah, but we only get this much wine. Okay, we'll get bigger glasses. It's not about the quantity of wine. You can take a big chunk of bread if you want. We've always got leftovers. But it's not about the quantity of wine as much as it is understanding the significance of what it means for God to welcome us into His presence to feast at His table in the heavenly sanctuary. Where we come in at God's invitation, He is host and He provides Himself as the life-giving sustenance. The manna from heaven. The bread of life. When God makes room for us, we who were alienated from God and deserving of His wrath, when God makes room for you and me at His table and invites us to feed on the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ, we get a glimpse of true hospitality to the stranger, to the undeserving, to people who are not like ourselves. At God's table, we see the essence of sacrificial love and extravagant generosity. When we feast in God's presence with our brothers and sisters in this congregation and in fellowship with all God's people throughout history and around the world, we come to understand more fully what it means to be the body of Christ. We begin to recognize Christ cleverly disguised as our neighbor. When we go out in the world, we learn what it means to share life together as members of one body. We learn to see interruptions and inconveniences as opportunities to embrace our identity as God's children and to prove God's faithfulness. After all, the Apostle reminds us in Hebrews, remember to entertain strangers, for you might just be entertaining angels unawares. And so may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.